Warning, the following podcast contains naughty words and opinions. While neither of these has been shown to be hazardous, you should be aware that exposure to both has been known to cause chafing. Apply only to available ear-shaped head holes. Cease insertion if resistance is met. All right, Jason, I'm going to let you read. Uh, I'm going to let you lead the charge on this one since this is your I'll do my best. All right, cool. All right, well, welcome to Sideslop, the podcast we do whenever the fuck we want and uh, about whatever the fuck we want. And this week is Bebe's Kids. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so this is John's first viewing of Bebe's Kids. Correct. And, uh, what'd you think? <laughs> it's kind of like a loaded question. It, um, it's very loaded. No, uh, what I think, for my, my very first impression was it was not what I expected. This was a mix of Rugrats with like some very harsh social reality, you know, like the short answer is I liked it. It was way more serious than I expected. I mean, I guess from like the packaging, the title and all the other shit, kids movie, but definitely not. Well, okay. So I didn't know who was his name, Robin Harris. Yeah. I I didn't know who that was going into this. So like I was really thrown by the immediate stand up bits. Like, yeah, I forgot about that. It's been a while since I've seen this movie. Like very like opening credits start and you've got robin harris like in archival video doing like some of his some of his bit it was it was weird editorial choice wise because like as somebody who didn't actually know robin harris or the routine it it, it felt like very decontextualized um so like you get a couple of like hints as to what you're gonna see because they end up covering all of that material throughout the movie but on its own it's just these like little like ephemeral ephemeral sorry ephemeral moments that like don't actually make coherent sense on their own. No. And I assume that people going to see this when it came out understood the the bits and came to it for a reason. But once, once you got past that and like once, once the movie actually starts, it it was about like eight minutes in before I realized what connection that had to the rest of the movie, except for you just you saying, you know, yeah, he's a comedian. He wrote this. He's yeah. It starts off and it's, it's almost like um, Cliff Huxtable kind of thing, but like in a dive bar you know, where like <laughs> if like Cliff Huxtable had like a super bad day with like all the kids. Yeah. And he's telling the story of like he went on a date with this woman that he met and basically she's a single mom and the date gets crashed by like her friend's kids. <laughs> baby's kids. Right. Baby's kids, which like, <clears throat> OK, cool. So now now I actually just get what the setup is like the first time they're like baby's kids like in the open. You're like, who's baby? Where are there? There's no kids. I don't get it. Right. But then like it's this barfly story and it kind of like at that point turns into a Rugrats adventure. It's okay. So it's the Rugrats meet Cliff Huxtable, but Cliff Huxtable is not their dad. He wants to be the dad, but only to one of them. And then on top of that, you've got like really sort of like classic counterculture references thrown on top of that mixed in with like bad news bears like morality (laughs) tale but on top of that you've got multiple levels or multiple layers of social commentary about the way that basically black kids should not trust white people (laughs) and i i took no offense to that because i was watching it i was like yeah that seems right I, i don't know like it was it was very much like talking about single parenthood and growing up poor and growing up in a way where like you're just kids trying to have fun but everybody is suspicious of you and right 
but then it's also the Rugrats. Like it was, it was way more complex than I expected. First of all, it has a lot of layers. Yeah. There's a lot going on, but it's still cohesive. It doesn't, it's, it doesn't feel forced. It, it's all put together well. Yeah. It's, it's not like this, like it's not nearly as disjointed as I'm describing it. I'm just trying to like lay it out without putting the whole plot into this episode, right. you know? So I, I guess the answer is I really liked it, but like, it wasn't as funny as I expected. It was more of like a dramatic movie than I, like, cause I really thought this was going to be a cartoon, you know? Right. Like a kid's movie cartoon. Right. And and it was, I mean, it was PG 13 and obviously like it, it dealt with more mature subjects, but like I almost would want kids to see it because even though it is mature subjects, it's dealing with them in a way that it's, it's not, it's not candy coating any of it. It's not moralizing and it's not talking down to you. It's just showing this reality as, this guy, this Cliff Huxtable character is kind of discovering, you know, the, the reality of the kids' lives. And and so he's sort of like the position of the viewer. And he's realizing that these kids have a really shitty home life where they don't have food in the fridge and like they don't mm-hmm. get to do things. At the same time, they are rambunctious little rugrats, you know? <laughs> like, yeah. On that note, I was kind of curious, like, because you said we basically picked this because you said it was one of your favorite movies growing up. Yeah. So how did it strike you now as an adult? It was mostly just the kids being kids when I watched it. So a lot of the stuff as a child, I wouldn't have picked up on like when he gets pulled over or any other shit, like the kids not being able to touch things or the, the authority kind of thing. Like, yeah, I've always had like a, a weird hatred toward authoritarian kind of views and corporate bullshit. I think you and I share that a little bit. Yeah. yeah I even had that as a kid. So watching it, I saw that in here too, but. The social commentary I never really saw as a child like I did just now. I think when you're a kid, things make sense to you in a certain way. And that the way that they make sense isn't wrong. It just becomes more nuanced as you age. Mm-hmm. I think a kid might have watched those scenes with like the all the all white security personnel like frisking the dad and just being yeah. like, cops are jerks. And like, they're not wrong. Right. It's just also more complicated, you know? Yeah. I mean- I saw it more as an authoritarian kind of, you know, they're the CIA, they're, mm-hmm. they're, they're, th- that's just the way they are. Right. It wasn't because uh, Robin Harris is black. It was because the CIA or the, the, the Fed in this or whatever are that way. The park security guards. Yeah. Are. To the movie's credit, the movie never explicitly says this is a race thing. It's right. just, I mean, that that is definitely what I'm taking away from it, you know? Right. But I think that. I mean, I think it'd be fair to say that that was intentional, but yeah. but the movie's not hammering it. The way that the children are treated by authority figures that happen to be all white, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. and, it, and it's not just the white authority figures, it's all authority figures. There's a very anti-authority bend to this movie because like it's it's definitely harping on like the all the rules at the fun park and mm-hmm. like no introspection. Yeah, exactly. Or what was the lyric in the song? Um, Fools make our money for us or whatever. Yeah. Like, Yeah, it's anti-corporate, anti-authority. Yeah, you know. and, and there's a little bit of hero worship um, from the Robin Harris character of like Dolomite, who's a countercultural icon, obviously, mm-hmm. and like the slam poetry and stuff that, that Dolomite uses in his movies. And like, like, I think you just get a feeling of what the movie is reacting to from its time, you know? Yeah, and they play well with it. There's a lot of, you know, like, um, what, what fucking thing am I thinking of? Uh, oh fuck. Like, it's not like, not, uh, or boys in the hood or something like that. Like, oh yeah, yeah. Like those movies are commentaries to some degree, but it's like forceful and like the, the horrible side of it. Right. You think like do the right thing and yeah, things like that. Cinema is always talking about what's on the, the consciousness of society at the Mm -hmm. time, you know? So this I think is a children's movie version of that. (laughs) 
in a sense. I don't. I mean, it it plays both ways, right? It, it can be a children's movie, and it cannot be a children's movie. But that is one of the things it is preoccupied with, you know, like, right? Even if it's just at a uh, a subplot level or a subtext level, you know. Yeah, it was super interesting. Because one of the other things I wasn't used to as a kid was watching movies like this, that this cartoonish style where the adult characters had romantic plots, like real romantic plots. Like Mm -hmm. Robin Harris is trying to get a relationship started with a single mother. And in the middle of it, his ex is like comes across them and is trying to sabotage it. But in these kids movies, usually that stuff plays out at a very like B story level. Yeah. Like it's 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 sort of in the background, like the adults get it, but it's kind of hidden. Yeah. But this movie definitely like put that stuff more up front than I was used to. Yeah. And like a lot of the kids movies we watch nowadays, it, it hides it in there through dialogue. Mm-hmm. So it's not actually a part of it. So like they'd say an offhanded comment that an adult would recognize, but a kid would just find like not funny, but, but like, eh, like people are laughing. Whereas this, you know, it's there's entire scenes and there's an entire plot dedicated to Robin Harris and his ex-wife and mm-hmm. and his courtship of Jamaica. They don't do it quickly. Like there are long scenes yeah. of dramatic, you know, development of those story angles, mm-hmm. you know, they have an adult conversation about it. If I were like looking at this like differently, I would say this is an adult movie mm-hmm. that they added kids to or that they hammed up the kids part of it a little bit or amped it up a little bit to, you know, market it to children. It did make a couple of the comedic transitions a little bit jarring. Well, I think the most jarring part of this movie isn't the movie itself. It's the production quality in the in the, the editing oh, like yeah. the audio and the mix and everything like that. Well, a lot of the audio was like was not synced to the animation. So oh, like Yeah, that's purposeful, I think, but Well, some of it was purposeful, but some of it was just I think bad looping. But yeah. like a, a, again, this is a movie where they probably didn't have the money to like edit like all of the performance perfectly and then animate to it, you know? I mean, like just they in, did. in moments it didn't work, you know? The the mix was still really hard at the very beginning and throughout, like the the songs they did were, were mixed poorly. Like you couldn't mm-hmm. hear the singing around the beat. It's just weird. The movie is good. It's just sometimes hard to understand. Movies from like the 70s and 80s, there was a lot more people doing things outside of the, the traditional studios, you know, or mm-hmm. like people that, worked in the studios also doing like passion projects on their own that that then made it into actual theatrical distribution. So I kind of wonder if this was, you know, something that Paramount picked up for distribution, but did not make, you know, because I wonder about that. It feels like a little bit of that homegrown effort, you know, and, and maybe that some of that roughness comes from that. Yeah. I mean, honestly, when it first started in the credits felt like in living color, right? Yeah. You know, like went to that show and was like, Hey guys, we want to, have our first like you know movie produced mm-hmm. will you help us because you have a you know all the great actors right of the 90s before they made it real big like what snl does with their movies like their first ones were really bad not bad but produced bad <laughs> as minimally budgeted yeah, as possible and, and like joe's apartment from mtv like that's oh, God, what this yeah. felt like is a sketch comedy show's first attempt to make a movie the audio mix uh, issues like they they kind of resolved like you pointed out when, when when I was complaining about it up front uh, that that archival footage was doing us no favors you know right. so it kind of starts off with the worst possible source material and then it gets better so well yeah they're also taking an archive from like I don't know 1986 or something whenever <laughs> it's like whenever Robin Max, Harris, you know yeah yeah whenever Robin Harris you know recorded this special or this might just be like some dude like his buddy filming it for him sure yeah and as he created these characters and probably ad- adapted it to this story mm-hmm. 
you know, he had other people help him because he obviously he died in 1990. Since this came out in 92, I assume he had written it or, or maybe someone just made it out of respect. I don't know. Well, yeah, I mean, it might've been one of those things that they had talked about doing before I'd, he died. I'd be curious to look at the history of this. Cause it's not very often you see a movie that's been produced and put out on DVD or in theaters that is born out of a comedy skit. Yeah. Like How many things like have we seen of Dennis Leary? Like those are never adapted into anything or it just seems unique. It feels fun to watch something so interesting that's under the radar so much. I, I think that the multi-layered aspect of it makes it a more interesting watch. It's not just another paint by numbers Rugrats like movie. Cause right. like, I know Rugrats is classic. Don't don't be mad. But like, you know, they've probably made six Rugrat made for TV movies by now, and they probably all feel roughly the same or like, you know, Scooby-Doo, you know, SpongeBob, whatever. Yeah. You know exactly what you're going to get when you tune in for it. But this one was like, I think that roughness, that homemade quality, you know, makes it more interesting. There's going to be some winks and some nods to the adults in the audience because they have to take their kids to it with their dialogues and shit, like we said. Sure. All in all, there's not going to be adult content in it. Whereas this one was, you know, way out. It, this wasn't made for kids, in my opinion. Like, No, I'm watching it now. I don't think so. No. Th- remember, we were talking about uh, Mar- uh, Super Mario Brothers. And then mm-hmm. the movie is two different movies, but bad. Because right. Because there's the dark, gritty thing that the directors wanted. And then there's the lighthearted kid shit that the producers wanted. This one, it balanced it all. What I really liked about it is that he's he's sort of stepping into this this fatherhood role for a day. Mm-hmm. And he's somebody who clearly doesn't want kids. Right. And the movie never belittles that. They never make fun of the fact that he's not interested in being a dad. Like, right. they nod to the fact that he's good with kids and that he likes that kid, but he doesn't have any interest in being a dad. So, like, this journey that you go through of his day as a father, he learns about these kids. You learn about these kids. You empathize with them. You you grow to to see their situation. And he grows to, like have a different perspective on because like he starts off not wanting these interloping children to come with him and by the end of the date he's grown as a human but he never says yeah but now i want kids right it does like they don't treat it like a lot of these movies treat it like where you're just now a kid person because you spent one afternoon at the fun fair yeah you know like and so like even even that part of the story where he does grow and he he becomes more willing to participate in like supporting these, these kids he, like he becomes more empathetic for them yeah. at the end. Cause at first he's just like, I'm just trying to get after Jamaica, man. Get these kids out of here. Well, yeah. And at the end he's like, I'm still going to make out with her, but fine. You can have a pizza. Like, <laughs> Yeah. I mean, but they never do this. Like he's growing as a, as a father throughout the film. They don't do that. No, no. And I like that. Well, yeah, I like it that they show that somebody can, that can both not, be a kid person and still be a good person. Right. And a lot of movies treat those two things as mutually exclusive. They do. And the fact that he doesn't really grow as a father, right? He's not trying to be their father. He's just more empathetic to their situation. Well, yeah, he's like a, he's a human. Like, he's just like, okay, these are tiny humans. I need to, to help them out. Exactly. Like they don't make it awkward because adding that into the, the screenplay would, would fuck it up. That's part of the reason why it all works for me is that it feels real. The story, even though like the kid stuff goes into like pirate ship bonanza, you know, whatever. Yeah. That's all kids. So it doesn't need to be real. Mm-hmm. But the but the the emotional aspect of the movie actually stays pretty true to reality, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you think of the music numbers? Because it's weirdly like a musical as well. <laughs> I don't know. Kids rapping just always feels like three, two, one contact. 
<laughs> you know, like it will always feel like three, two, one contact. Even, yeah. Even though I don't even remember if they wrapped in that show, but it's kids incorporated. It's whatever it's. Yeah. I'm expecting kids wearing solid colored, bright red and blue and yellow, mm-hmm. like primary color t-shirts. Yeah. Sort of wrapping at the camera while everybody has obnoxious hair, mm-hmm. like not like eighties hair, just kid hair, you know, like bowl cuts and like whatever. And I, I don't know, like it just, it puts me in that space, which is fine, but uh, I, I can't say that I liked the music because anytime a kid's rapping, that that is where my head goes. I'm just. Yeah. And it's not like they would do today where they would hire like rappers. Right. Or like get a kid that's starting out in rap that hasn't like made it yet. Yeah. They just got voice actors and they made them do it. I guess it was fine, but it definitely has that that not real music feel. Yeah. <laughs> like Or like the weird little fever dream in the middle mm-hmm. when they're falling in love on the love boat thing. Right. That was, it, it, this movie's just surreal in that way. Which, okay. So the, I, I do want to talk about the animation style. Cause that was kind of cool. They changed the animation style completely for this fever dream to like, he's fantasizing about Jamika and his fantasy goes to like a school teacher, like sex fantasy almost when they do that, the animation style goes to like almost chalkboard. Yeah. And, but it's like, it's very bizarre because it's less detailed than the actual animation. It's also saucier because like it's like zooming in on her ass and stuff. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think it was actually a really good stylistic choice because the fantasy is now like, you know, you're filling in the detail basically on these line art drawings <laughs> yeah. of like what you're watching, but it's all in his fucking head, you know? So, right. I mean, that was the like the one weird like faux pas moment, like cliche bullshit, like fantasizing about teacher. <laughs> it was also weird because they're having this like date and this is like the romantic like moment. And how realistic is that, that like he's supposed to be in the tender moment and he's just thinking about getting laid. Right. Like, and not that like he's a bad person because of that, but that's like reality is like sometimes your brain goes places it's not supposed to. Yeah. And this was produced in 92 and there is a, you know, bit of chauvinistic tendencies in it, but it's also shut down Mm -hmm. a lot. It feels dated in its attitudes, but it doesn't feel like they were ever like malicious towards women. It doesn't feel like they were promoting it. It feels like it was just part of the culture and they added it, but they added the proper response by the woman. Right. Yeah. And they didn't just lampshade over, you know, like lampshade the audience about it with the, with the, like the, oh, well, you know, I'm a creep. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, sure. Well, it's, it's like the moment in the car early on when, uh, he's, he's kind of trying to like George Costanza, like, you know, like, (laughs) you know, like he's trying to George Costanza her, but he's in the passenger seat. So he has no, he has no power. And she just slams the fucking brakes and mashes his face into the wall. <laughs> like, yeah. Like it's empowering for, for all the things. Sure. But it's also, I mean, it, it does feel of its time in, in a lot of ways. But it's not as bad as other movies of its time. It's not Saturday Night Fever. Let's be honest. Yeah. <laughs> let's see if I can get some hate mail. Let's talk about Saturday Night Fever. Um, hate mail. I guess the weirdest thing to me was like the whole idea that he was trying to pick her up at a funeral. <laughs> was like which i mean we kind of glossed over the whole plot but like yeah the movie opens with him telling the story of how he met this chick and he meets her at a fucking funeral and it's like her boss died and he's like hey baby that guy was a dick yeah like everyone (laughs) like this i watch this movie like anyone listening to watch this movie it's fucking fun but he's like ah fuck that guy everyone hated him and like everyone in the background's like hey hey, fuck that dude fuck this guy like Wayne's a cheap bastard. He right. still owes me money. Like, <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Have you ever gone to a funeral to celebrate? Like, it's kind of like, are these are these all bad people or Wayne, was Wayne that awful? It's like a wake, I guess. I don't know. Like, yeah, there's guys playing dominoes. Like, just everyone's drinking, whatever. Sure. But I don't know. I've, never, I've not been to a funeral 
of a f- close family member in a long time. So yeah. I assume that's how they go. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, he was a real dickbag. <laughs> Glad he's dead. That son of a bitch owes me money. Oh, look at that hot girl. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm just going to go over here now and talk to her. Hey, baby, you look good in black. <laughs> yeah, well, that was okay. So there's like the whole kitchen full of creepy old dudes, like just staring her down. Yeah. Oh, sorry, I'm just fixating on picking chicks up at funerals. It's just weird. But. <laughs> But the, I mean, the dialogue's really good, I think. It's snappy, it's not drawn out, it's, you know, quick. Yeah, the dialogue, especially early on with those group scenes, and mm-hmm. at, at, at the bar when he's telling the story, it really does have the feeling of, like, overlapping conversation, the way that people actually do talk, as yeah. opposed to the scripted, everybody waits for their turn, sort of very polite mm-hmm. uh, Hollywood dialogue that you normally have. There is overlapping dialogue, and that's sometimes why it's hard to understand what sure. people are saying. But it's it's normal, it's fun, it's... It, it still catches you. I mean, basically, it's like a one long mom, your mom was so fat joke. <laughs> well, there is the your mama joke break in the middle. So, yeah. yeah. Classic. Yeah. Story-wise, it didn't, even, it didn't even bother me that there was a your mama joke break. Like It was a joke battle. I get it. Yeah, exactly. Breaking out in a women's restroom like they always do. <laughs> exactly. And then just like the random characters that are, are thrown into this, like the old lady that's just always caught in the middle of bullshit. Mm-hmm. Doesn't actually say anything. Just always there. Whenever I see characters like that, I always, I always wonder if those were written in the screenplay or if that was like an edition of the animator. I mean, I don't know how screenplays work for cartoons. I mean, I assume they work the same as other screenplays. So the guy could have written it in. He, I mean, he definitely could have put it there. Yeah. But also, you know, directors and animators and stuff, they they frequently sneak in their own little touches. So, you know, it's without actually having a chance to talk to somebody involved, it's hard to know for sure, you know? Yeah. Well, uh, we're talking about the director. You want to talk about the animation style? How would you describe the animation style? Because I'm just going to throw this back at you. Um. <laughs> well, I would describe it as children's art. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not refined. It's kind of sloppy. It's It doesn't really have any idea of perspective. Right. Like, the characters are sometimes super large. Sometimes they're super small, like, in the, in the thing. Yeah. Uh, like, the car driving through the town is almost as big as a building. Like, it's just... Well, it's, very, it's very angular. Yeah. There were a couple of times where they did interesting things. Like I could tell that they animated the background at a different speed of some shots than yeah. the foreground, which 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 created the feeling of a camera panning. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm sure that's not incredibly uncommon, but you could tell that they were doing it for the surrealism, you know? Well, I, I guess the angular stuff, um, if you want to get all film school about it, you know, like you might describe it as being similar to like the German expressionist films like The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, which anybody who's taken like a... Mm-hmm. classic film studies will have seen but it's like very much distorted perspective um which you know plays well with the kids i think yeah because you see a lot from their perspective too yeah so that's cool um as far as like the actual like art style i i do think rugrats is not a terrible comparison for the character like design character design yes but the other environmental stuff mm-hmm. is not rugrats like it's more like ren and stimpy yeah well yeah with slightly less emphasis on boogers and hair but yeah well yeah well, belly button lint. There's that's still a thing in this. That was hilarious. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, Robin Harris is in the middle of films picking his belly button. He's like, yeah, mm. he's on a he's on a date, just sitting on a bench, like at Fun World. Yeah, at Fun World, he's just picking out his belly button lint. Like I should turn to Jason. I was just like, that's that's you. That's yeah. You'd be doing that. No, I mean, some of my mannerisms seem to have come from this. <laughs> Between this and Men at Work, I think we've really delved deep into the psyche of young Jason. <laughs> I don't know who introduced me to this movie or if I just found it on like the shelf. Was, was this a video thing or was this on like TV? I think this was on a video, but I don't know if it was like a direct-to-video. No, no I mean, I, I remember this was in the theaters, but I meant like, did you, oh. just, did you discover it on video or was it like you came across it on cable or something? Don't recall. 
I mean, it might have been from my sister. I mean, she was older than I was, so she would have been like, I don't know, 15 or, or 16. Yeah, which is probably the perfect age for yeah. for this movie. No, I mean, it's it's adult animation before adult animation was a thing. I mean, the the, the brash animation, like, just for adults. Right. It's like the, the gap years. You mentioned Ren and Stimpy, and then, like, I think this would be part of the Ren and Stimpy transition yeah. to adult animation. Like Yeah, you know, like, the, they're like counterculture, a little weird. Oh, this is very counterculture, yeah. Yeah. I attribute this like Ren and Stimpy and all that shit, but it's not disgusting. We'll say that. We didn't watch the itsy bitsy spider thing. Oh yeah. We forgot to do that. So at the end with that little spider Mm -hmm. in the hallway, that's basically like an animated cartoon about that. It was like one of the old, like before the movie, they had the the pre-animated thing that they'd show. Yeah. That did remind me of the itsy bitsy spider is in the like landing of the stairwell going into Bebe's apartment mm-hmm. when, when they're dropping the kids off. So they never really explained where where Bebe is. Yeah, no, they just said she had to go downtown for something, which could mean she landed herself in jail or something. Yeah, exactly. Like, she could be in jail, she could be on a date, she could be at work. Like, you don't know. But, like, you're kind of just, like, you get this really gritty depiction of basically, like, a very, like, you know, low-income, high-crime neighborhood, you know? <laughs> yeah, it was like, I like in the middle of the movie... Jamika turns to Robin and is like, I think there's trouble. And he's like, fool, we ain't Compton. There ain't no trouble here. You know, like it's that sort of thing. And that, you know, like, like they never explain yeah. where the other people in this story live, but it doesn't matter because the baby's kids are coming from Compton. It is interesting though, because the, like, even the way that they draw, what was, what was her kid's name? Uh, Leon. He's drawn differently yeah. than baby's kids. Um, and, and they're, they're always fighting between them, you know, and him. Yeah, I mean the the classic like, oh, I found my name on like the little license plate name thing. Right, Khalil and Pee Wee and uh, Lashawn. You know, like they ain't never have. I know four Lashans. They ain't never have my name on these things. And it's like Leon is kind of like drawn as the white kid. But in that moment, he's actually in the background of the shot, checking out of the register, buying a Leon he, license plate. Exactly. Yeah. And there's little things like that that I, that I love. Well, and they're drawn, again, very angular. Like, their posture is very angular, and he's very vertical. You know, like, mm-hmm. uh, specifically, like, I mean, you would say, like, he's got good posture, but he looks very stuck up and, yeah. you know, sort of posh compared to them, you know. Yeah. I guess the class element is, it's apparent in the drawing, you know. Yeah, and the, the other white kids they run into are apparent, too. Right. And I just like the, what's your name? It's Winthrop. He's <laughs> like, fool, I'm calling you Opie. Like, mm-hmm. it's great. Like, I don't know why, like, that amuses me so much. Which one was the baby? Pee-wee? Pee-wee, yeah. That was, that was Tone Woke, right? Yeah. And because Tone Woke, I just know his voice. His voice is so distinctive. I loved the fact that they had the little baby have the deepest, graveliest, like, harshest voice of any of them. When he showed up on screen, you're like, that baby looks 40. I know, he did. <laughs> and it was perfect because, I mean, I think that a lot of the comedy like with the baby is like really dark when you really think about it because you know he's this little kid and he's got like this terrible home life but every time he talks when there's a joke that comes out of his mouth it's hilarious because it's got tone loke's voice you know like yeah um so i I think they did a few things to sort of help sell the comedy that were that were smart with that you know i love a lot of the kid parts which is weird because you know like kid acting is it's just weird to me, like, especially in the 90s, 80s and whatever, because, right. you know, kid actors weren't that great. Like, there were some great standouts, but, you know, for the most part, they were not. Yeah, you don't you don't have to caveat this. Kids suck. It's it's not like today where you get, like, a group of kids that do Stranger Things and they're all pretty fucking good. Yeah, yeah. Or, like, the It, the new It. 
from 2017. I mean, all those kid actors are pretty fucking good. Dumb question, completely unrelated to Bebe's kids. Do you think that's because they're better at writing dialogue for kids? Or do you think that kids are just better at acting? I think both. Well, because like when you watch like old Christmas vacation movies, like the kid Rusty talks just like Chevy Chase. And you're like, well, that... He's 14. He wouldn't talk like Chevy Chase. You right. Know, like, I think they're better at writing for kids. And I also think kids are, are becoming better actors. Okay. I mean, they're, they're given more opportunity to be better actors. They're, their parents, the opportunity if they're trying to get into acting. So right. it's just another method of income. <laughs> 14 year old has 10 years of experience. <laughs> right. No, I mean, that's, I mean, I think some of the SAG laws have lessened over time too. Yeah. I mean, I think they're still pretty harsh on like, the number of hours they can work a day, but and that's that should be. You're you're probably right. It's probably a lot easier now to be a child actor than it but used to be. Kid acting, even through cartoons, like I'm just annoyed at kids. The yeah, Bebe's kids aren't annoying. They're funny. Leon, like going back to the the difference between mm-hmm. the kids, Leon really is more of a kid. He's emotionally vulnerable. Yeah, he's sort of easily intimidated. He's you know he's he's got a lot of growing to do. But Bebe's kids. They really are more, not adult, but like they're jaded. They're, yeah. They're, you know, they're more weathered, you know? Yeah. And they don't really become kids until the end. Right. Until the pirate ship stuff. Like, you know, it's like when they, when they finally get to cut loose completely. Yeah. After the freedom song. Right. Which they, was weird. Yeah. The, Abe Lincoln showing up as a robot. I don't know. Yeah. The whole trial was, was pretty bizarro. Yeah. Uh, like it kind of turned into a Twilight Zone episode, you know, for a little bit. But Yeah. It was like super like the robot shit was like super like weird dystopic future shit. Well, I mean, there was a lot of dystopic future shit, like all the surveillance stuff. Yeah. Th- and that was part of what I, was, what I was talking about was like the lesson of don't trust authority figures. Oh, yeah. You know, it's like that dystopic element is actually pretty strong throughout most of the, mo- the movie. You know, mm-hmm. it's like I already forgot his name. The, the the writer. Robin Harris. Yeah. Robin Harris gets frisked by the by the basically the park security yeah. guard. Like. There's cameras everywhere that are actually spying on them. There's the agents like, so all that stuff culminates in like basically a kangaroo court trial. And you're just like, the kid's got electrodes connected to his head. And like the, the robot They're judge is him. holding the electrodes, like a, like an inch apart about to like kill the kid at any moment. And yeah, like that dystopic shit got real like intense. Yeah, that's why it's just so, it's such a weird layered movie, but it works. I just don't understand how this can work. And it just being an oddball 92 comedy, right? Like, yeah. It's not even that long. It's like 110 minutes or something. No, no, it's like 72 minutes. What? It's yeah, it's fucking short. I think the Dolomite reference was intentionally or not, I think stylistically appropriate because mm-hmm. Dolomite is a stand-up comedian doing an action movie mixed with like beat poetry and like a very strong sense of like the culture and the music that was, you know, popular at that time. And it's also very anti-authoritarian. So Dolomite was kind of maybe a stylistic guide and they might've just leaned on some of that technique, you know? And that's fine. I just like, how, how does this movie pull this off? But modern movies can't. Well, modern movies don't take a chance. This movie did something interesting. It had something to say. Yeah. But even when they do take a chance, they don't pull it off. When, when was the last time you saw a kid's movie that took a chance? Fuck. I don't know. I can't, I can't give you an answer to that. I'd have to do a massive amount of research. Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking like maybe like Wally, like. I mean, the one with the balloons. I can't remember the fucking name of oh, it. Up, up, yeah. Uh, that was like super dark. But I guess those don't even take chances in the in the way that we're talking about. They're just they have a little bit more drama to them. What I'm even talking about not even com like uh, cartoons. I'm talking about movies in general. Like sure, 
this has so many layers and it all worked cohesively, but you get a movie with like a single layer. Mm-hmm. They try and add a different, like a, a romance plot and it just falls flat on his face. I can't say for certain, but this movie I think had a single author or, you know, like right. Robin Harris was doing something that was then adapted into a film. Whereas I think a lot of movies these days, like the ones we're talking about are basically written by not a committee, but they're written with like the oversight of a committee because there's so much money at stake. Yeah. And I feel like we've, we've had this conversation before, but I think it always does come back to the more money involved, the less risk. What, are the, what was the old like thing that producers used to say? Like, we'll make 10 movies. One will like nine will fail. One will win. And that one that will make so much money that the other nine don't matter. Mm-hmm. Whatever that fucking thing is like, yeah, it's not true anymore. No, they pay for 10 movies and they want a billion dollars from each. When they did the, you know, make 10 and one pays off. That was when they would make, you know, that was like kind of the Roger Corman thing. Like he would make Mm -hmm. 10 movies and one of them would be death race, you know, and that would pay for like 10 years of the studio basically, you know, and everything else would be hopefully marginally profitable, but every now and then they'd have a loss and it was no big deal because everything was basically paying for itself because it didn't take that much to to recoup, you know? Um, But now that your average summer movie has a budget of 200 million dollars or whatever it's like yeah maybe it's Pluto Nash's fault right like it had such a high budget and such a high failure like but movies studios are like that never happening again I mean maybe but like you would think Pluto Nash would be the opposite like lesson like don't invest that much money into a single movie (laughs) no I, I agree but I don't know like movies like this excite me because it's not often you get to see something unique yeah and original I mean, I'm not talking about now, like there's the modern bitch about studios remaking too many movies. Studios have always remade movies. Sure. This isn't yeah. fucking new. The original content is hard to come by. Well, I mean, even even the earliest movies were like Nosferatu was the first movie sued for uh, copyright infringement, which is ripping off Dracula, you know? Yeah. Like, I'll have to double check that, but I think that's the direction that went. But somebody smarter than me has said this before, so I'm going to quote somebody I don't know who, but I would I would rather watch an interesting failure than a mediocre success. Right. This movie's not a failure in the first place, but even if it had been a failure, it would have been more interesting to watch than a lot of things that quote unquote achieve their goals, you know? I didn't look up the budget numbers or anything like that or, or the box office numbers or anything like that, but I'd have to assume that this movie did its job. Yeah. Whether through, you know, financial gain or, you know, social commentary, it did its job. I have to think you're right because we've I've told four people we're doing this episode and all four of them have quoted the movie back at me. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm the only person in the world that hasn't seen this thing. Well, you and my wife. Correct, yeah. It was a nine, 1992 fever dream. <laughs> and there was, you know, chalk outline teacher booty, so yay. It was a very nice looking chalk outline booty. Let's just let's just put it this way. Uh, I, I didn't have the doodle skills back in the day to, to match that, so. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I look forward to the doodle that comes out for this. I just have to figure out how to doodle chalk. <laughs> so, up, down. Let's do, let's do the final vote. D- Deafen it up. Watch it with a group. It's fun. Uh, upgrade your audio system because <laughs> you might need some like dynamic shifting. Yeah, the dynamic range control, I think, yeah. uh, it helped uh, even out some of the volume shifts. Yeah. I'm going to go up also. Um, yeah, like the, I have no I have no real caveats. I just it was it was more serious and dramatic than I expected. But that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. Yeah. So, yeah, check it out as an adult who did not have any sentimental attachment to this film. I'd say it's definitely worth watching. Yeah. And uh, maybe someone over in one of the streaming services will will hear this and be like, oh shit, I love that movie as a kid. And, <laughs> and try and get the rights to put it on their streaming platform. Oh yeah, because that's why we bought the DVD, right? Yeah. Yeah, we actually ha- we have uh, 
mean, I'm a, I'm a movie collector, but Jason was like, oh, fuck, we got to do this movie. We have to. I'm going to order this off Amazon right now. Like, Yeah, and I'm keeping it. <laughs> <laughs> this is getting my slop sticker. Awesome. That's it for for Bebe's kids uh, in Cinema Slop. We don't die. We just multiply. That's right. Cinema Slop. Pig noses everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> cool, man. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I loved it. That's it for this episode of Cinema Slop. You can visit us on the web at cinemaslop.com for show notes and other garbage. Or if you want to follow us on social media or pitch your Walter Chang's inventory choices to us, you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, all under Cinema Slop. The music for this episode was provided by Vandalay. You can find them on the Facebooks at Vandalay Music or vandalaymusic.com. That's V A N D A L A Y music.com. And if you want to hear assholes talk about different movies than the ones we talked about here, then go and check out Super Movie Ball. Find them at supermovieball.com and iTunes. My dingling. My dingling. Ding. Ding, ding, dingling. Ding. Yeah. Alisa loves this burrito. It's pretty big. Oh, nice. She got a burrito? No. She's look, she took a picture of the dude's burrito next to her. Oh. She asked him to take a picture and he's like, Yeah, you can take a picture. <laughs> okay. She's fucking weird. Yeah, well, she's that's how you make bar friends. She's she's playing like burrito bingo or something. Burrito or like burrito bingo. Scavenger hunt burrito style. <laughs> you have to find an old man in a bar eating a burrito. You know, it's like an old man in the bar eating a burrito is the unreleased Herman Melville novel. <laughs> like that was that was a heated old man in the sea, right? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Sweet. I made a literary reference. Maybe Ooh. Google it later. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>